And the Lean Out podcast is sponsored by freewheel.co.uk, where you can buy online while also supporting local independent bike shops. Hello guys and welcome to the October edition of the Lead Out Cycling Weekly's race show. I'm Alex Ballinger and alongside me today we have Vern Pitt, the News and Features Editor for Cycling Weekly magazine. Hey. Uh, we've got a really great episode for you this week. We're going to be looking back at the World Championships in Lombardia and then looking ahead to the track calendar as well. Uh, before we get started, let's take a look at the headlines from the last month. The Yorkshire 2019 World Championships dominated the headlines in the last month as Mads Pedersen and Annemiek van Vluten were crowned new road world champions, while Chloe Deiger and Rowan Dennis took the elite time trial titles. Barker Mollema won the 2019 Il Lombardia, stealing victory from the pre-race favourites and claiming his first monument. Parry Tor went to Lotto Sadal's Yellow Alace, who took victory by 30 seconds over Nicky Terpstra. The first British e-racing champion has been stripped of his victory for manipulating his data before the race. Cameron Jeffers cheated Zwift to unlock the in-game Trombike, which gave him an aero advantage, which he then used to win the British Cycling Championships. Bahrain Merida have terminated the contract of Rowan Dennis. The team made the announcement during the Yorkshire World Championships, days after Dennis won the time trial world title on a BMC bike. He has yet to announce a new team. Right then, let's take a look back at the World Championships in Yorkshire. Uh, Worlds on Home Roads, Vern, is really great, wasn't it? You and I were both up there to cover the racing, although we had to get the max out quite a few occasions, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I had a, had a unnerving moment where I lost my jacket for about 24 hours, didn't I? Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was grim. I mean, who would have thought it? Uh, World Championships in Yorkshire in the middle of September would be hammering it down with rain. But um, yeah, it was, it was pretty grim weather-wise. I think you got the worst of it, though, didn't you? If you were there for the almost legendary under 23 time trial with the uh rivers of uh... it was madness absolute madness we were sat there watching it in the press room it was up on the big screens and just the puddles across the road so it was a race of two halves wasn't it really where you had the guys that went out early didn't know what the conditions were going to be like you know floods across the road were being taken out by the weather and then you had the fight for the win with Mikkel Bjerg taking third win on the banks yeah I mean that's super impressive from that that young man. I mean, don't know if that's uh, been done previously, three on the bounce at, at the under-23 level. But I mean, that's one of the reasons he signed for UAE for next season. And yeah, we'll see if he can kind of repeat that kind of performance in the senior ranks. Leads, it seems leaps and bounds above the rest of the competition at that level as well, doesn't it? But it will be interesting to see if that does translate because it doesn't necessarily always reflect how someone will perform you know, no, in the top you, tier, does it? You get that weird kind of thing at under-23 level where some people kind of reach their potential quite early and then you get some people who, you know, they don't kind of get to their sort of full potential until they're 24, 25. So you can't necessarily read across, but certainly if I was going to put money on someone developing well, then, you know, there's a lot worse places to put it than on Mikkel Berg right now. And so sticking with the under-23 racing as well, let's look at the under-23 uh, road race. This was more madness for this one, wasn't it? Where it all played out sort of, you know, it was a tough race, really exciting race. Played out, you know, quite kind of as expected. Small group going to the line. We had a sprint finish with about four or five guys. And, and then it all sort of kicked off after the end, didn't it? With Nils Eekhoff being disqualified about 20 minutes after he crossed the line because he drafted behind his team car earlier in the race, quite a lot earlier in the race as well. Yeah, so I remember 
watching the end of that race, stood in the mix zone, kind of wondering what was happening because it would take them ages, didn't it, to announce the uh, the winner? And you were seeing people running into the commissaire's tent back and forth. I believe at some point someone punched a wall yeah, in there. That was the story that yeah, and, someone punched uh, a tent wall while we were waiting. Yeah, exactly. So it was a it was a tense and kind of controversial moment. It's definitely a, obviously a controversial decision uh, to ban him. I, like everyone else, obviously have an opinion on it. I mean, should he have been should he have been banned for doing something that people do in race all the time. I mean, pe some people say no, but that rule exists for a reason. It's so that you can't get dropped and then just paced back on whenever you want or else, you know, it wouldn't be a race at all, would it? And my opinion is that whilst that happens all the time, when you get paced back on by the car, you should know because the rules are pretty clear about it, that you are rolling the dice. Now, yeah, okay, nine times out of 10, you might get away with it, but there is times when you're not gonna get away with it. And I believe the UCI, said prior to the championships that they were going to cut down on that sort of stuff. So, you know, whilst I feel for the guy, the rules are what the rules are. And he should have known that he was taking a risk. A lot of the controversy around it seemed to be revolving around speculation as well after the stage, didn't it? Where someone had tweeted a video and said, this is the moment that he was, uh, you know, that he was disqualified for, even though there was no evidence that was the moment at all, because the commissaires didn't say exactly when it had happened. They just said, that he'd been drafting for more than two minutes, which is a long time by any stretch of the imagination, isn't it? There was also the suggestion that why didn't they ban him? Uh, why didn't they disqualify him immediately during the race? But the reason for that was because it wasn't picked up until afterwards, where yeah. Ekoff won, a video referee then goes back to him and looks at all of the footage and of Ekoff and then find this and then flags it to the commissaires who made the decision. So there was a lot of misunderstanding, I think, around the issue, wasn't there? I think we can kind of all agree that if you draft like what was it it was like 120k out from the finish or something it was, it was a long long way from the finish if you're drafting the car you probably if you're going to be disqualified you should be disqualified at that point that's the better scenario but you then have to look at okay well why didn't that happen well there's not a guy sat there with a line to the commissaires looking at all the video that's coming in continuously and able to rewind and review it and stuff and part of the reason for that is is money really because you know that's what they, have, they do have that in some other sports. Like I know the NBA has a whole, in America has a whole like video conference suite with referees watching every single game that's going on. But that's a sport that makes a lot more money and has a lot more cash behind it. And our sport, sadly, just doesn't have that. So yeah, would we like that? Would that be better? Yeah, sure. But I mean, there are reasons why it doesn't exist, I think. Let's take, uh, let's take a moment to talk about Tom Pidcock then as well, who had a very interesting race. He was by far one of the strongest riders, wasn't he? He had to chase on after suffering a puncture early in the race. Looked really strong then, made it into the front group. He was in the lead, wasn't he? And he said in his, uh, speaking to him after the race, he said, for 50 metres from the line, I was under 23 world champion. And then he faded. And then so he ended, finished fourth and then got bumped up to the bronze medal spot, didn't he? Yeah, so you spent the day with his family watching? Yeah, I did. I spent, uh, I spent the whole day with uh, Giles and Sonia Pidcock, that's his parents, and, uh, and his girlfriend, Beth, um, following the race around, just driving around the uh, back lanes of uh, Yorkshire, uh, and then sort of stood on the finish line. And um, it was a fun experience. And you couldn't help but when you watch a race like that with the rider's family and it's a big deal to them, you can't help but kind of get kind of caught up to some degree in the emotion of it because you know they're very emotional it was a it was a pretty it was a pretty tense situation like constantly sort of ramping up and ramping up and you know i think coming into that final straight as they round that final corner any other week of the year you would have probably put your money on tom pickcock but 
he had a crash at Lavernier and hadn't been able to train for several weeks because of knee injury and stuff. So he clearly didn't have that last little bit of form that you need at the end of a race like that to do that kind of a sprint. I think it was Keith Lambert pointed out to me later in the week that the Italian uh, guy who won, he put like five bike lengths into him in a not dissimilar situation in Lavernier, like in a sprint. So there's good reason to believe that had he had had he had the had he had the form, he he might have won that. But you know, bike racing, all sports are full of all those what ifs, aren't they? You know, that's you got what you got on the day. So a bit of a shame for him, but a, a good performance nonetheless. He's very much an all or nothing kind of character as well, isn't he? That he knows his own abilities, and anything less than first place is not enough for him, is it? And he said after he admitted he was disappointed. He said it's not how he wanted to win a medal, being promoted because someone else had been disqualified. But even so, he fourth and third feel like the same to him, I think, don't they? He, he wanted to win that race. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, even when he got like bumped up, I, I had to sort of, having left them to sort of their, their grief, I had to go back to the Sonia and Giles and say, well, what do you think of that? And their response was pretty much, well, exactly the same, because they knew, so like, that doesn't mean anything to him. Mm. Like, that's not, that's not gonna matter. And arguably, that's the case to a certain extent with the World Championships. Like, it is very much a, an all or nothing race, I think. Whereas, like, I think the Olympics, winning a silver or a bronze at the Olympics feels more significant than winning a silver or a bronze at the World Champs, I think. Yeah, the way Pidcock put it after was, uh, he's got a nice souvenir, but he wanted the jersey, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. sums it up really, doesn't it? He's a good rider, so I dare say he'll, uh, he'll get more at some point. He'll certainly get another chance, I would have thought, for at least. So let's move on to the time trials then as well. So. Uh, fantastic week of time trial. I personally love a time trial. I know that not trial. everyone does. And I, uh, Spreadsheets on wheels, mate. Spreadsheets I can't be, on, no, I get that. It's all right. Yeah, it's yeah. All right. yeah. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is the nerd sky kind of racing, isn't it? The, um, Rowan Dennis said that uh, time trialists are special, was, his, was the <laughs> phrase that he used. So looking at the women's uh, time trial, now this was a fantastic race. This had to be one of the, uh, the races of the week, didn't it, really? One of the performances of the week, at least, by uh, Chloe Dygart, who took the win. I mean, that was... It was... I mean... It's beyond impressive. I, I, you run out of adjectives or superlatives to use to describe that performance. I mean, I think, wasn't it the biggest margin in history? Yeah, and since the event has been introduced, yeah. I mean, that, that girl is pretty, pretty special, pretty special talent. And I think what's, what was interesting about it is obviously you don't see her because she races primarily in the US, so we don't see her against the likes of Annemiek van Bluten or Anna van der Breggen or any other number of Dutch riders. Um, you just don't see that that often. So to then have her turn up and, and do that is, I mean, it's, it's terrifying. Like, uh, I, I think I said to someone, like if she's obviously gonna be the, the fulcrum of their team pursuit team in, in, in Tokyo. And, you know, if I was the women's coach at BC or, or any other nation, you know, I'd be, I'd be terrified mm. of her um, because, I mean, you, we knew that she had it in her, but that was definite confirmation of the class that, that is Chloe Dygart. I, I personally felt like it was a surprise still. I got a lot of grief because during the week of the Worlds, I went on to BBC Radio Yorkshire to talk about the event and talk about the women's time trial specifically. And I made the faux pas of not mentioning Dygart in my while talking <laughs> at all. So I mentioned Van Vluten and I mentioned uh, Van der Breggen, who I thought were the sort of out and out favourites for it. Turns out I was very wrong. And I got them in the wrong order as well because I thought... Um, I thought Van Vluten would have performed better as a reigning champion. She had a rough day, didn't she? Finished third. Van der Breggen was sort of as consistently strong as you'd always expect, but very much the wild card. Like you say, don't see her that often because she's a track star as well, Chloe Dygart. But that was, I mean, what was the, what was the margin in the end? It was about 133 over Van der Breggen she won. So even with Van Vluten having a bad day, 
there was no one that was going to beat her, was there? No, and I mean, I don't blame you for not having her in that list because, like you say, we don't see her that often. You don't know how she's going to stack up. She's quite young. Those, she's had those problems r- with injuries as well, isn't she? She illness, has. She, yeah. I think she's described herself pro- previously as like an injury-prone rider, and you saw that in the road race the following couple of days later when, you know, she was clearly one of the one of the strongest, not not strongest about Bluton, but one of the strongest in that chasing group and tried to get away or successfully managed to get away a couple of times and then. You know, I saw her after the race basically being held up by a swanier, like hobbling and hobbling back to her bus because she sort of injured her or strained her back, which I think is a persistent injury that she's had. Right, so then looking at the, the other big time trial of the week, the men's elite time trial, much less to talk about in this really because it kind of went as was expected, didn't it? Rowan Dennis taking the win by a considerable margin. Yeah, it went to the form book, didn't it? Um, I mean... Again, I suppose you could make an argument that Dennis was a bit unknown. He hadn't ridden since the Tour de France. You didn't know what you were going to get from him. But, I mean, he's a class rider when he's in the right kind of headspace and when he's, you know, got the, got the equipment that he needs. Um, controversially. So, controversially, yeah. So, assuming he can keep riding like that, like, there's not, there's not another person in that field that you look at that you think is definitely going to challenge him in the next couple of years. Yeah, he, as he crossed the line, he pointed to his head, didn't he? And when asked about that after the race, he said... It was about getting his head in the right place to win this bike race. And there was a lot that that involved. That involved a lot of work with the psychologist, I think. A lot of work training as well, because he said that he didn't know he could win it until, I think the date he said was something like the 13th of September, because he did a training session that was sort of perfectly suited to this effort. And he knew then, that he, or he thought then at least, that he could win. But then also there was the changing kit as well. He refused to ride a Merida bike from his Bahrain Merida sponsor. Rode a BMC, unbranded, but everyone knew it was a BMC bike. Um, and then has now had his contract with the team terminated as well. So there's going to be still a lot of question marks around what he's going to do in the future, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, if he didn't want to get his contract terminated, then spending about, what was it, the first 100 kilometres of the men's road race on the front of the peloton on his red BMC probably wasn't the best idea in the world, but, you know, he did it anyway. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of by the by. He was, he was a class rider. The other rider that I think is worth kind of highlighting, certainly from a British perspective, was Alex Dowsett coming in in fifth place. He's done a lot of work to get back to the kind of forefront of time trialing. And I think, you know, he still feels that there's still further room to improve. Um, but, you know, that, that really cemented that he's kind of gotten himself right back in the mix there. And he can kind of kick on from there next year, I think. He put it, funnily enough, finishing fifth place, he put it in his top five of ever time trial performances as well. He said he puts it up there with the Giro d'Italia stage and the hour record and things like that. But it definitely feels like he's coming back and that was a huge result for Britain as well which has struggled in that discipline for quite a long time also since the retirement of Bradley Williams exactly yeah yeah. and one storyline I really liked following was John Archibald as well who went into this complete unknown hadn't ridden that distance in how you know in its individual time trial and however long um, and was sort of very much you saw it seeing his face before the start he looked very much like he was shocked by the whole shock to be there basically (laughs) because he was called up at the last minute when Grant Thomas pulled out but then uh, 14th finish is fantastic, isn't it, in the world? 14th best time trials in the world. And Andy got, yeah, Andy got to spend a not insignificant amount of time sat on the hot seat, which is, you know, probably a nice experience for him. I mean, he'd had it previously in the uh, mixed team time trial, but still, you know, that's that's uh, that that'll be good for him, and and that'll do a world of confidence for for him kind of going forwards. I'm sure there's more more sort of improvement to come from him uh, at some point in in time but I mean I think he is quite focused on the track so whether he'll put much effort into that he might sort of wait and see if he can kind of break into that track program and if if he can't maybe he'll focus on that I don't know we'll see and then so on to the women's road race then as well this was 
it's got to be the performance of the week, hasn't it, really? Annemiek van Vluten attacks uh, near the top of a climb, 100 kilometres, 104 kilometres from the finish, and just rides away from everyone, and that was the day done, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, that was, that was a, that's one of the performances, not just of the week, but of the ages. I mean, I think we were all sat there watching that in the, in the press room at Yorkshire. Sort of general consensus was, well, that's not going to last, is it? Like, that, this, is, this is a canny move tactically, but that's not going to work out. And, uh, you know, a couple of hours later, or several hours later, she comes and wins, uh, having had no one able to catch her. Um, I think that the Dutch, I think the thing that sort of is worth mentioning is not just her individual performance, but the team performance of them having Van der Breggen in that group. Like, if Van der Breggen hadn't been there, I think that would have made that group much more cohesive, would have given it much better chance of catching Van Vluten eventually. But they're all looking at looking around thinking, well, as soon as we catch her, Van der Breggen, who's been sat on the back the entire time, is going to go. And then even back in the peloton, you had like Marianne Voss, who was... You know, had it come to a sprint finish, probably would have been most people's pick to win that sprint and finish. And she did win so, the bunch as well, didn't she? She yeah. did lead the rest of the riders in. So, yeah, it's exactly how it would have gone. Exactly. So, you know, I think the Dutch tactics played it perfectly to allow um, Van Vluten to do that and for, for that to be successful. So, whilst, you know, all credits were for the individual performance, I think it's worth mentioning the, the way that it played out from a team perspective was absolutely perfect. And then for the British, for the British fans as well, it was a slightly disappointing day. Lizzie Dignan looked to be one of the strongest riders in the, in the race, was one of the strongest riders in the race, but it just didn't quite come together in the end, did it? I mean, she got, she kind of fell victim to uh, the fact that you're on home soil in her home county. There's a group that are struggling to work together. Everyone's looking at her to do a big chunk of the work, which she did. and. She had kind of no choice. It's like, what do you do? Do you do you not work and let us get caught by the bunch, or do you do some work? Because that was kind of the situation that she wanted to be in with a small group that she could potentially attack from. But she kind of she kind of got worked over by that group. But I don't really see how she could have played it any differently, to be honest with you. Yeah, and then she attacked a few times, didn't she? And as soon as she did, the cohesion went out of the group. But yeah. you can understand why she got so frustrated because for a lot of the day, Van Vluten was within range if there had been a good a group working together, but then it wasn't. She attacked. It just didn't quite It was a proper catch-22 situation. And even if she'd attacked from that group, there was a point at which she might have been able to catch Van Vluten when she had about like 50 seconds to a minute. But as soon as those attacks started going in that gap, it quickly went out to like a minute and a half, two minutes. Uh, and at that point, Chloe Dygart couldn't bridge it, and we saw how good she is at time trialing. There was so, a moment, wasn't there, where Chloe Dygart sort of crossed the finishing line on the on the local laps, and she had exactly the same gap to make up as she'd won the time trial by over Van Vluten, with about the same distance as well. And everyone's like, "Oh, can she do it? Can she do it?" And it, it was too much, wasn't it? it was, yeah, it's it, a bit different riding that that uh, <laughs> that distance after so hundred odd kilometres in the legs rather than uh, from the gun. So uh, yeah, I won't hold that against her. And on to the men's race then, uh, this was a bit of a thriller, wasn't it? The, uh, particularly because of the weather again, you know, we were getting, the, the course, so the course was changed as well, it's worth mentioning. Um, they, they took out two of the big climbs of the day, they took out Grinton Moor and Butter Tubs, which it, it felt like it really changed the dynamic of the race, didn't it? I think to a certain extent it changed the dynamic of the race. I think because it was so long, it was always set to be a, a grinding process, which is kind of how it ended up being anyway. So did it change it that much maybe it would have been ground down a bit quicker possibly potentially um but i mean that was that was a hard race i mean if i remember anything from this week sort of when i'm old and more gray um sitting in an armchair it's going to be the looks on the riders faces as they either dropped out or came through the mix zone at the end of that race i mean it was i say it's, it's tasteless compare these things to war but they look like 
it was like being a tent of the Crimea or mm. something. Like it was, everyone was sort of blue-lipped, pale-skinned, like sunken eyes. Uh, almost everyone to a man was uncontrollably shivering. I mean, it, it was a it was a grim day to spend that amount of time out. On a Trying bike. to interview the riders as well when they'd just been out in six and a half hours of pure rain. They were frozen. Some of them were hypothermic, weren't they? And you exactly. Were you were trying to ask them how the race went, and understandably, a lot of them were not. Interested, I mean, massive were they? respect to the to the guys that did stop and actually speak to people. Like I know Tao talks to TV, and Ben Swift had obviously been British British hopes had been pinned on um, talked to TV and talked to the press as well. And you know, fair play to him because him and everyone else was frankly a mess mm. at that point in time so um it was a lesson in how hard bike racing can be for Absolutely, sure yeah and uh, so mads pedersen took the win completely unexpected uh, youngest youngest winner since oscar friere in 1999 beat matteo trentin who just should have been the favorite really and was the favorite as soon as it came down to that sort of el- that elite selection he was a favorite it just didn't happen did it well no it's not dissimilar to what we were saying about pickcock in the end of 23 like it come around that final corner you're looking at that going trentin's got this he, you know easy easy gonna do it he opened up the sprint, didn't he? And then basically the guy came, I don't know, I don't, came kind of level with him and he sort of sat back down. He was, he yeah, was kind it, of cooked. It, he, it, strangely, he went from about 200 metres out, which in a three-rider sprint, it's you would say way. is tactically not, maybe he was a bit too confident. Maybe he thought, this is mine. And he went from a long way out, never really got going. And Pedersen was just completely invested and, and yeah, took him in the final 50 metres. Yeah, I don't think anyone's, you know, people in the know, I, I spoke to a Danish journalist afterwards, knew Pedersen was a, a, a decent, a good, rider who would definitely win races but you know to have won that race at at that age i mean some days you've just some days you've just got it but you know i think we'll see see a bit more from him and sometimes you see that with young riders they win like a big race or a world championship hopefully they'll kick on or, but obviously there is the curse of the rainbow jersey which he'll have to deal with especially for such a young rider as well i mean he's 23 and he's the youngest world champion since since oscar friere in 99 so that's a long you know is, there's a reason young riders don't necessarily always win the world championships and that's because it is such a hard race but he's second in the Tour of Flanders when Nicky Terpstra won last year. So, I mean, he's definitely got some pedigree. It's just you hope that you can see the rainbow jersey at the front of races, don't you? Yeah, and I'm sure we will. I think, like, he'll have to deal with... He'll, have, he'll very quickly now go from underdog to... Well, as I think he said after the race, like, he won't be an underdog anymore. So that'll mean he'll have to ride differently. And you've seen, like, you see people... Like Peter Sagan has struggled at various points to to deal with that because everyone looks at Peter Sagan like, you know, to do all the work and and they race kind of negatively against him and he's going to have a he'll have a little bit of that I'm sure which will be, probably be a bit new for him so be interesting to see how he copes with that in the next year. Okay, so let's move on to the last, really the last big race of the year, isn't it? Il Lombardia, Race of the Fallen Leaves, which is one of my favourite, favourite race sort of like nicknames. Always love this race. Always like that week building up to Il Lombardia as well. I think it really sort of works together nicely. You get to build up an idea of who are the strong riders this late in the season because it's so different to the rest of the year, isn't it? Yeah, and that's, that's an argument that I saw people making on social media a lot the other week that, you know, why can't the whole season be like this with this kind of... I think like me making that argument. Is that you making <laughs> with that me argument? Making that yeah. argument. Yeah. Well, it's very, very good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of agree with you. <laughs> like, it's... Um, you know, it, it, it is a kind of microcosm of, of, of having that kind of narrative over the space of a week or so, which is really good. I mean, you came into that race, didn't you, with Egan Bernal having won a race. Um, Michael Woods had one as Michael well. Michael Woods yeah. and... Primus Roglic was looking Primus really Roglic, good. yeah, that's it. 
well done. <laughs> um, with those three Pop-less. riders, the kind of three big favourites, all having won a race in the run-up. So, you know, you had a you had a proper kind of sense of the form book. And then what happens? They all look at each other and Balka Mollema, who no one's really paid any attention to for the entire week, <laughs> just clips off the front and goes and wins the thing, which is a very Balka Mollema thing to do. Like, I think it's definitely worth sort of focusing on Balka Mollema for a little bit because, you know, with the rest of these guys proven race winners as Mollema is but very quietly he's very much uh, he is an underdog isn't he really he's a dark horse that I mean if you look at just look back at some of his results so he's 32 he's got 13 wins this was his first monument which is worth pointing out as well because that is always that can be a turning point can't it the first monument is a big win um, so his wins though also include stage 17 of the Vuelta in 2013 um, he won the 2016 Classica San Sebastian stage 15 of the Tour in 2017 and he's got Five top 10 finishes in Grand Tours, including uh, fifth in the Giro this year, sixth in the Tour in 2013. Is there anything he can't do, but just very sort of quietly on a low level? <laughs> He's kind of made a career out of being underrated, Mollema, in, 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 in some respects. Um, and, but I think, I think what makes him good in those kind of situations where he's not the favourite is he doesn't think he's the favourite. He knows where his sort of position is, I think, in the, in the kind of standing so and he knows how to he seems to know how to use that to his advantage not all the time he doesn't he's not a prolific winner but you know he can come through and get those get those good results um almost always solo he Um, also benefited from some strong team help as well which is something that trek don't always have in a lot of races but julio giacconi looked fantastic and he's had a really great year hasn't he but he helped set up quite a quite a small group that had gone off the front that then came back together but then trek then had two riders who can climb really well in that final and it was just Mollema was the first of them to go and I mean 18 kilometer solo ride which in a 240 kilometer race as tough as Lombardia no small feat is it no it's no small feat at all I mean um that that kind of bodes well for next year with Nibali joining uh joining that team uh to see them kind of work in it as, as a unit uh being you know hopefully that'll uh continue into next year and then there were a few of the favorites that really didn't do anything today. Pretty much Roglic won two one-day races in the build-up, was out-and-out favourite, bookies favourite, but now looked like he was coming back to his best as well. But like you said, they just, it wasn't there, was it? Those guys just ended up watching each other because the stakes were so high. Everyone wants to win a monument, don't they? And this is the only, this is the monument for the pure climbers. I mean, yes, Nibali won uh, San Remo, but, um, and climbers can win that race, but it's a bit more hit and miss, whereas this is the pure climbers monument. So yeah, it's understandable that, the, that they would kind of look at each other, but you know, that, you don't win one day races by looking at one another, you win them by putting everyone to the sword. And you know, that's what Monoma did. Let's look to the track season, which Vern, you are a big track fan. I, I like a bit of track. Sadly, uh, we haven't got our colleague, uh, an esteemed and glorious leader, Simon Richardson here, who, uh, who loves track more than, who he's probably healthy, really. Has an encyclopedic knowledge of individual pursuit records. He does. Which is a very niche claim to fame, I think, yeah. isn't it? Well, he's got a spreadsheet. I mean, it's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, who bought bike are really the big story for the, for the winter this year, aren't they? Just because their future is uncertain, and yet they are one of the strongest teams racing. Yeah, I mean, say their future is uncertain is, is kind of a bit generous at this point. I mean, I think their future is fairly certain in that they're not really going to have a place to ply their trade at the, yeah, end of, uh, at the end of this season, uh, and barring some sort of turnaround from the UCI, which frankly seems fairly unlikely. But yeah, they're, they are, they're obviously going to be setting out to win World Cups, as they, as they have done the past couple of years. And, you know, we love their kind of plucky underdog story. Whether they're actually underdogs anymore, I'm not 100% sure, but a bunch of guys sharing some student housing in Derby is still a, you know, it's still something 
enjoyable to root for. That will be a, an interesting sort of thing to see unfold, seeing whether they can kind of accomplish that. And then obviously they've got this plan, which they had sort of originally set for last August um, to go to altitude and make an assault on the individual pursuit, the team pursuit and the hour records over the space of about a week, I think, um, which will be, you know, interesting. Um, they've got data that says that it's, you know, all doable. Um, I wouldn't dispute it probably is doable, but actually doing it is a slightly different matter. Yeah. But um, They're yeah. big on their spreadsheets as well, aren't they? And their spreadsheets tend to be pretty reliable as well when you've got John Archibald setting individual pursuits, you know, C-level records that you you imagine that that is all just based on the work that those guys are doing in Aero, basically. Yeah, and they're going to have Ashton Lamy with them by that point as well. Like, I think he joins the team sort of midway through the track season. He's just set a brand new individual pursuit world record, again at altitude, like his previous individual pursuit world record. Yeah, that's not a bad engine to have on the team, is it? Um, it's not a bad moustache either. He's pretty, yeah, one of the best moustaches in cycling, I would say. Probably well. the best. We probably, probably not talk about his moustache. <laughs> can, we, can we not do the moustache thing? Moustache thing goes in. <laughs> <laughs> so Hoobotwike have just unveiled a string of new sponsors as well, which is quite interesting. They've got loads of new kit, haven't they? And they've, they've finally uh, branded up those... POC, controversial POC helmets that they use, which yeah. they own the world's supply of because POC have stopped making them, haven't they? And they've yeah, got the remainder. As I understand it, yeah. I don't know if that's still the case. Is that still the case? I do imagine they'd bring it back, although they aren't, I imagine they're not hugely popular, those helmets, based on how they look. Because when John Archibald was riding the World Championships individual time trial, pretty much all of the conversation on Twitter was about how terrible the helmet was. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're absolutely hideous. I mean, they're an affront to all sense of anyone with any sort of stylistic sensibility is not, is going to look at those and go, they're horrendous, but they are faster. So ultimately that's what matters. And now they are adorned with the Darbados flag, which is their, it's sort of their national colours that they've national invented. Colours, yeah, yeah, national yeah. colours that they've invented. Um, so they're even more striking than they were previously. But it looks like they've just sort of recalibrated, really, doesn't it? This is the, the fact that the team may not continue because the UCI is getting rid of trade teams in World Cups. It just means they've recalibrated for this season and has put the impetus back on their world record attempts, hasn't it? Which is a good way to go, I think. Yeah, I think so. And, and it's a shame that they've got, all the, they've got additional sponsorship coming in and now the, the team's going to have to end. But... Um, you know, if you could be associated with a team that's potentially going to go and break all those world records, you'd probably do it, wouldn't you? Because that's that's going to be a, a good thing for your um, for your business to be associated with that. So, and then so let's look to the upcoming track World Cups as well. So this is a particularly big year for the track, isn't it? Because it's coming up to an Olympic year, and so this is when you start to look at results and think, okay, is this how it's going to go in the Olympics? Yeah, for one of a. For, to use a cliche, it's, it's squeaky bum time um, this, this winter if you're a track rider and you want to go to the Olympics. Like you're going to have to show what you can do over the course of this uh, over the course of this World Cup season. So we have Laura Kenny who's targeting uh, three disciplines at the Olympics and at the World Cups as well. So she's looking to the Omnium Team Pursuit and the Madison. Madison's a new addition to the Olympics, isn't it? I really love the Madison as well. I think it's a great race. It's just, it's chaos, isn't it? It is utter chaos, which used to be my primary objection to the Madison, that no one, including possibly some of the riders, had a clue what is going on <laughs> at any given time. But I've sort of come around to quite liking it. You sort of learn to read it after a while. Uh, and once you can do that, um, it actually becomes quite exciting. The hardest part about it is just trying to find where the front of the race is, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, you know, the UCI, uh, you know, you still have to have the guide pointing. <laughs> the guide point, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, which, you know, it's 
it's a foolproof system. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, um, so Katie Archibald as well, also looking to the Madison uh, and Team Pursuit ambitions, but she's let the Omnium take a back seat, hasn't she? Because she really wants to focus on those two disciplines. Yeah, I think she said that, like, back to us, I think, last, last year, this kind of time last year, I think she decided that trying to go for all of them was hedging her bets too much and, and you know, you're better off kind of trying to focus on on, on trying to get, get the spots for two of them because... And I've said this countless times, like the, the women's endurance pool at British Cycling is probably one of the deepest bits of the programme. Uh, I mean, you've got easily a team pursuit squad that you've got three reigning Olympic champions there. Plus, you've got the likes of Emily Nelson and Nia Evans, sort of newer riders that are quite capable of being in there. And then there's a whole undercard of riders that really, frankly, aren't very far off that themselves. So you can make a pretty strong case for that being the deepest part of the squad. So I don't think anyone in that, in, in that part of British cycling can kind of take their spot for granted. And then looking at the, uh, the Olympic men's sprint team, there's a bit of a fight, I think, isn't there, to try and, you know, for, to try and decide who's going to get those fight. spots. It's a fight. It's a fight on the boards. <laughs> so we've got guys like uh, Jack Carlin, Ryan Owens and Joe Truman, who are all looking for spots alongside sort of, you know, proven, proven guys like Jason Kenny and um, Philip Hines. So what else do you think we should be looking out for at the, at the World Cups that are coming up this winter? Well, obviously, there's you know the the men's team pursuit squad. Certainly, the British lineup for that is not 100% certain even at this point, because um, you've got like youngsters like Ethan Hayter, who pretty makes a pretty good case having been former world champion. Obviously, Clancy's still around. Charlie Tanfield, and then you've got um, Kian Amadi, um, who kind of fits more into that sort of more modern pursuer mould of really big sprinters who can then sort of adapt to riding a team pursuit, which is basically what the Aussies have done. <clears throat> so obviously, you know, there's a fight to get in the British squad for that. Um, then there's Viviani um, potentially coming back to defend the Omnium. Uh, I think he's going to be doing some track racing over the winter. Yeah, we know that he's riding uh, London six day um, in the coming weeks as well. And then it'll be interesting to see, presumably he will be doing some of the World Cups and some of the sort of the actual, you know, the actual sort of... Um, you know, the UCI track event. You would imagine so. I mean, I don't know what his calendar looks like, but obviously, you know, it'd be interesting to see how his form's going. And in fact, who's going who's gonna to challenge him? Because um, at the Olympics, you do get people from the road come back like Cavendish did um, back, in, uh, back in Rio. So it'd be interesting to see kind of whether, the, whether, that have, whether we see some people doing that again with hopes of going to the Olympics or, or not. Potential for Cavendish as well. He's doing a couple of six days, so we've found out he's doing London six day, and he's also just announced he's doing the Ghent six day. Is there potential for him to go back? Because I know that a gold medal is something he really wants. Yeah, it? I mean, obviously he got his silver medal in the Omnium at, um, at Rio, but if there's one thing everyone knows about Mark Cavendish is that he likes winning things. So um, I'm sure you won't. There'll be a bit of him that wants to wants to win again. He's been very non-committal with the press. We asked him a couple of weeks ago outright if he was going to go back, and he. So maybe, I suspect maybe will be his answer until we find like, out. Until we find out, yeah, yeah. Until, until someone either selects him or doesn't select him. Right, let's move on to our last segment then. Uh, this is the fun one. This is, so this is our little discussion topic for the week. We're going to do the 30 second effort. Oh, this is We're the... going to bring back the 30 second effort where we will introduce a discussion topic and then each of us is going to get 30 seconds time. Oh, we're both going to get it. We're right? both going to get it, don't worry. Okay. So I'm going to have to embarrass myself okay, to, <laughs> to try and come up with some, uh, some reasons. So the discussion topic we're going to look at is does the UCI need to drastically change the cycling calendar? 
Now, let's, before we, we delve into this, let, we put it to a public vote. So we've got 540 votes. Uh, so 53% said no, the cycling calendar is fine, doesn't need changing. 47% said change is needed. So obviously that's a decisive win. <laughs> 53 decisive. decisive. Um, so, right then, boom, it's your turn first. Let's get the timer. Uh, I'm gonna have to go and get the timer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so does the UCI need to drastically change the cycling calendar? 30 seconds, starting in three, two, one, go. No, the UCI doesn't need to justly uh, change the cycling calendar, if only in part because moaning about the cycling calendar or the UCI is roughly fourth on most cyclists' list of hobbies behind drinking coffee, eating cake, and actually riding a bike. So we wouldn't want it to be perfect now, would we? Or we'd have nothing to talk about. Um, and anyway, starting from scratch is, is not really possible. I mean, it's not actually in the UCI's gift to in change it over entirely. They have to do it in conjunction with all the race organizers and there's a lot of money at stake and that's not easy. Oh, perfect. Perfect. We'll let you have that last easy in there. Thanks. Right. I don't know if I'm going to be able to count you on that, man, because that was a bit too concise. It was, too uh, well, I, I kind of, when your answer's no, it's fairly easy. Yeah. <laughs> Should they do this? Nope. <laughs> right then. Okay, so 30 seconds starting from now. So I think the UCI do need to drastically uh, reshape the calendar and I think because there isn't enough cohesion in the full week where there is a culmination in a big event I think that the end the Ulaanbaatar week is fantastic you have a load of smaller building up races which then end in a big climax which is the big last race of the year and that makes a lot of sense you get the same protagonist you get a narrative you see the same riders week in week out that doesn't happen with the rest of the calendar where things don't build to a crescendo there's there's sort of ebbs and troughs and I think that you need something to really climax for it to be as exciting as it can be. Well, you, you convinced me, frankly. <laughs> uh, I, I changed all my answers. Fantastic. Uh, so, as I said, we put the, the poll to the public. Uh, we've got a few responses on Twitter as well. So, Ariel du Peloton uh, said on Twitter, it doesn't need drastic changing, just a bit of tweaking. Early season and late season calendar is all over the place. And Stephen J. Schilling said, uh, all, the, all of the lower tier and often more interesting races have too much overlap on the calendar, which I think the overlap is a fair point, actually. Yeah, I think the overlap is a fair point. I, I think you can definitely make the case that there's, there's too much racing or that the racing is not clearly stratified enough. But then you've got to have that kind of overlap of smaller teams stepping up to bigger races and bigger teams stepping down to smaller races in order to, um, in order to kind of feed riders through the system. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you think, oh, I'll move that thing and it, everything will be right and then there's knock-on effects. It's, uh, it's not easy. Right then, that brings this month's episode of The Lead Out to an end. Thanks so much for watching, guys. We're going to be back next month with uh, an end-of-year episode. And, of course, as always, Cycling Weekly magazine is available in shops on Thursday. It is. Uh, this week's is our travel special with uh, where you can read about my trip to Great Britain's secret training base in Portugal or... Simon Warren, Mr. 100 Climbs himself, running up a very, very, very big mountain in the Canaries, twice. So you don't have to. Well, you should do. <laughs> it looks good. The photography's amazing. Thanks again for watching, guys. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, and we will see you next month.